tour India's Golden Triangle with Tripper Deal on a nine-day package from just $3,298 for two people. Includes return flights, hotels and more. Visit tripperdeal.com.au. T's and C's apply. Tour India's Golden Triangle with Tripper Deal on a nine-day package from just $3,298 for two people. Visit Delhi, Jaipur and Agra on this incredible journey full of awe-inspiring sights. Includes flights, accommodations, select meals and more. Selling fast? Book now. Call 1-300-909-667 or visit tripadeal.com.au. T's and C's apply. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. This week we are privileged to be joined by Keith Merlin, and it's General Keith Merlin. He's a retired two-star general from from the United States Air Force. He was also the airport manager for many years uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, so we're very lucky to have him. Uh, General, thank you so much for joining us in Garden Views, and please, you know, uh, tell the folks more about your background, whatever you think is appropriate. Okay, Jeff. Well, thank you very much for inviting me tonight, and uh, I always love to talk about airports uh, and flying and aviation, and it's uh, it gets in the blood and doesn't get out. But uh, you're right. I was um, I was an Air Force brat. We lived all over the world: in Italy, Turkey, Libya. Um, went to three high schools on three continents. A typical you know military kind of dragging around. And uh, graduated high school over in Tripoli, Libya, and I came back to the University of Vermont where I went to undergraduate school. And um, Vietnam was cooking back then, graduated in 72 at the tail end of the war and uh, went into the, actually got commissioned in the Army, then went into the Air Force, inter-service transfer, went to pilot training, and then was flying tankers. And uh, the peace dividend in 77, we were just sitting there staring at the airplanes on the ramp. So since um, I grew up as a, you know, a, a a gypsy vagabond living around the world, and my wife did too. We decided to get out and relocate to D.C., and that's when I found the job with the with the airports authority. Uh, back then, we were part of FAA at Dulles Airport, and uh, both of our families, uh, her family and my family, had both retired. And she grew up the same thing with two tours in Greece and one tour in Iran, and that. So, you know, it was good to get home, and uh, started working at Dulles and ran. Uh, was at the operations department, then ran engineering and maintenance, came back to run operations, and then airport manager for 15 years, and then retired in 2005. The whole time while doing that, I was active in the Air, uh, Air National Guard, flying caribous and 130s, and then when the airport got busy, because I joined Dulles when I only had 22 million passengers in 77, and when I left in 2005, we had 27 million. Wow. And when it started growing real fast, I couldn't keep going on those Air Force trips. I had to be around to run the airport. So um, I slipped into aircraft maintenance over at Dover with the C-5s and went in the other sort of last second half of my career. And once I retired from the airport in 2005, I got what they, with general officers, it's a screwy thing. They don't really recall you to active duty, but they keep putting you on different extended orders <laughs> and uh, was vice commander out at AFMC acting out there and then came back to the Pentagon and set up the wounded warrior program was my last two years at the Pentagon before I retired in 2009. Wow. So that's sort of the background, jack of all, master of none. And uh, as some people will say, he's only an inch deep. So we can go from there. That, that's fine. I'm not going to touch uh, any of those things. I, it sounds pretty impressive to me. We thank you for your service uh, and basically five decades worth now, it sounds like, um, both, yeah. in, both, both in hot zones and uh, maybe cold zones. So mm-hmm. to the audience, first of all, I need to thank a couple of people. One, believe it or not, is my mom, because this comes indirectly through uh, her being the college roommate of a woman who I'm not going to name, but recently deceased, who worked for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. And 
I reached out to her daughter, who obviously I've known the daughter her entire life because she's a little bit younger than me, which is hard to fathom when she's probably going to be 48 or something like that soon um, and lives in London with the husband and children. Um, But uh, anyway, they they directed me to another gentleman uh, who directed me to General Merlin. So through my mom, through this individual who was her lifelong friend, uh, and, and her daughter, who is, you know, uh, you know, I think for some period of time, uh, you know, she considered me like her, her older brother. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not saying their names because I wasn't authorized to say their names, but I want to thank them. They all know who they are. Um, so that was very cool. Well, yes, let me interrupt here for a minute. I mean, the, the lady that you're talking about, your mother's roommate in school, was a force. Uh, she was a wonderful wonderful lady had a vision and uh, a drive and uh, just lifted up everybody that was around her and uh, we will miss her dearly and her daughter and husband and kids are just fantastic people had the pleasure of seeing them in london a long time ago and uh, hopefully she was out at the jubilee today because i know we were living vicariously through bbc uh news and uh and Fox carried it, thank God. ABC, NBC, and CBS didn't, but uh, it was great. So, yeah, fantastic, fantastic family, fantastic people. Yeah, I, actually, this is this is not like I actually spoke to her um, about being on the show. Not necessarily about this. I don't even think I had stumbled upon. I think this idea of this sort of recurring theme was pregnant in my mind, but it had not yet had any sort of direction or plan. It was just sort of bopping around. I just wanted to talk about her her life in everything, because she did everything from being a political activist to working on uh, presidential campaigns to running the airport. I mean, no, nobody ever knew what she did, but she was always doing something and she knew everybody. Um, so I always won six degrees of separation because I could just go straight, you know, for almost anybody, I could go straight to her because through her, I got the Jesse Jackson, who she introduced me to. He didn't look at me, but he shook my hand. Uh, George Schultz, the uh, former Secretary of State, Vice right. President Al Gore. Uh, I'm pretty sure she knew Clinton too, but I mean, she carpooled with the Gore kids. Um, well, her, you know, or she drove carpool with the Gore family. So through there, I'm pretty sure I could get to anyone at that point. So, uh, you know, I was always Kevin Bacon. Um, anyway, I, I guess enough about, but that's when first found out that she, that her, you know, health had turned, took a downside. And so she really wasn't able to commit. And it was really a shame because uh, I was really looking forward to that. Um, but anyway. Such is life. It, it has an alpha and an omega, but uh, to be remembered. And yes, she was, she was a force and nobody, no, nobody who knew her is going to forget her. So uh, anyway, off of that. So you were an airport manager. I believe that's the title, right? Airport manager? That's correct. And right. so, so that is the top official at an airport. So that's of. what we believe. Okay. <laughs> the, airlines, the airlines, of course, believe that their station manager is the top dog at the airport, but uh, you're right. I, I equate it to, you know, we are we we are like a well. It's hard to say nowadays because shopping malls are closing down, but we're like the giant manager, the owner of the shopping mall, mm-hmm. and we have or or the mayor of a town or a city. You know, we don't own uh, Lord and Taylor's or. Patagonia or whatever, or United or Delta or American, but we lease space to them. We set up business arrangements with them and long-term contracts with them, hopefully long-term contracts, although the airlines try to keep them short. Uh, And we provide them space and facilities and a way to operate to make money. And, and we, I always viewed our role as, and I, and I used to talk about it extensively in airline meetings that we'd have, every month with all the station managers is, you know, the, the sales pitch was done when the person bought the ticket mm-hmm. and our job at the airport was to get them from the curb to the airplane and on their way as nicely and as neatly and as efficiently as we could. And, um, you know, it's butts and seats as we used to joke right. and, and do that. And, uh, we had our own, we, we got our own and, and every airport's a little different. You know, some are run by cities, some are run by states. Uh, we were run by the FAA initially, 
and then we were turned over to a private authority, mainly to go to the bond market and raise money to improve, actually rebuild National and expand Dulles. I remember there was um, a lawsuit about that, whether the entity was even constitutional or not. Yeah, and our, and our friend was right in the middle of that. Right. Because apparently she was a lawyer, though I never knew her to practice law. Yeah, up to her eyeballs in it. But mm-hmm. it was it was great. But, yeah, and then we were a private authority. So we had our own police department, our own fire department. We had, uh, if somebody wanted to build something, we had our own construction people. We had our own codes department to, to regulate it and, you know, do that to make sure it was safe. So we had, we, you know, we had structures and grounds. We had, you name it, we had it. And it was so fun working with all those guys. So before before I get to things that are more important, I have what might be the doofiest question of them all and the least important. But who owns a duty-free shop? I mean, they're only in international uh, terminals. I assume they pay rent, but there's no tax. They're sort of like, you know, and and this is important to me because – in our mission, in our in our spaceport analog, uh, analogy, which, you know, it's going to be imperfect, obviously, but I assume there's going to be some retail there. I mean, I always joke it's going to be mining and mi- minerals first. There's going to be some type of sure. army, you know, military police force presence. <laughs> there's going to be casinos and hookers, um, you know, <laughs> alcohol and, and, and stuff to get, get people through their lives. But then at some point, you're going to need to buy and sell stuff and and since it's international, like it might be like duty-free shops. And I have no idea who owns or runs duty-free shops. So who, who does that? Well, it's uh, – uh, let me complicate it a little bit, and then you can remind me to push me back to it. We also have foreign trade zones at airports. <laughs> so to start out with duty-free shops, duty-free shops are nothing but a retail concession. But they have an arrangement with customs. So that the liquor and the cigarettes and the watches and the Burberry raincoats and everything else that they sell at duty-free shops comes in to them in bond, and it stays in a locked warehouse. And you've got to have customs approval to get into it and get out of it. And then the items that are sold, you have to be traveling and going out of the country. And then the person purchases the product gets a receipt for it, and when they get on the airplane, the package is sitting in their seat. So, and that's the way we work at Dulles. If you go to the Caribbean, you buy it, but you're already in the departure area, you know, you hold on to it and lug it through, and then you get on the airplane. But that's the way it run. It's run. Now, the airport makes money off of duty-free because most concessions all have a, a guaranteed minimum, a mag, uh, minimum annual guarantee that they pay the uh, airport, uh, or and and once you meet that minimum, then you do a percentage of sale. So if they exceed that, you know you want them to be successful. So you keep the your idea is to keep the mag down lower uh, to cover your bases for the space that you're renting them. But then you hope that they'll exceed that by quite a bit, so you get into the percentage that then gives you the revenue. So it's, it's, so it's not that much different than other commercial leases. Now, probably most of my audience doesn't know anything about that, or maybe they do if they've rented space in a mall or from a shopping center. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of times it's not just rent. You've got to show your books and you've got to show that you make a certain amount of money. Part of it is so the landlord is secure that you can pay the rent. But also a lot of times there is uh, some portion of the, the, the profits also becomes part of your additional rent so okay so this is because uh, we want we want the concession to be successful right and we want to share in that success so we want to we want to help that along and and i, and I mentioned foreign trade zones let me really yeah, mess please. up the conversation a foreign trade zone and we've got one in dulles is an area that isn't bonded but it brings in products from different countries or whatever. Can, can you tell us and what then, bonded means in this context? Uh, well, bonded is just a secure area. It's it's a it's an isolated area that's locked up that you you, you pay a bond, of, you know, like an insurance policy, I guess, okay. is better than anything else, I'd say, uh, that guarantees the products that are there, you know, the worth of what they are and what they're there for. And uh, it's just a separate guarantee that customs... Customs loves bonds. 
Okay. You know, and they do it that way. A foreign trade zone is different because that was set up by the Department of Commerce of back, eh, what, around 47, I think, 1947. And it, it really was to simulate economic activity. So if you have a product that is coming in from overseas, uh, let's say tires. You know, a lot of tires are made in the States, but Michelin makes a lot of them in France, too. Um, so they can import tires into the States, and they put them in a warehouse. And then when your car needs a tire, you know, the tire store very rarely has a tire that you need, but they can get it overnight. Mm -hmm. And they get it overnight because they have these warehouses. And so they call out for the tire. And if the car tire comes to the States, inside the States, then they pay the duty on that tire when it's released. Up until that time, they don't pay a duty. If they if the tire goes to Canada or goes overseas, back overseas to some other location, then they don't pay any duty at all. But it created a job for Americans in the U.S., and that's the way they work that. So you can put uh, – uh, we've got one company operating in our foreign trade zone that deals in uh, China, silver, crystal for high-end restaurants, cruise ships, fancy stuff like that. And – they take, you know, crystal from Austria or, or Ireland. They take China from China. They take silver from wherever, bring it all together, and then match it all up and send it out. It's sort of like if you – and the other thing is when you pay duty, um, it's like buying a car by pieces. Mm. I just I just had to replace a mirror on my, on my Audi. You know, it was $1,800. Now, if I bought – a mirror and another mirror and a transmission and that, that car would be a hell of a lot more expensive than the outrageous price I paid for it to begin with. Right. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the way you, you, you bundle it together. The duty is less on the unit than it is on the individual pieces. The another way for the co company to make some money, to save some money. It's so a reverse Sigma. It Say again? It's a reverse Sigma. The, the, the sum of the parts exactly. is actually more than the whole. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So those are two things relating to customs that operate at airports. Okay. So to demystify it, and, and obviously there's a lot of little nuances and, and uh, parts that are, that are probably very interesting, but I think to demystify it, the, this foreign economic zone basically is a federally monitored zone where there's certain requirements called bonding uh, run by customs where retailers or vendors are allowed to operate in an international zone and, and there are certain things certain things like taxes are are avoided um so it's just retail but you have some extra conditions to make usually in the bond but that's right. what a that's what duty-free shop is and that's why the cheesecake factory isn't you know generally in there um <laughs> you know or, or even starbucks um right. now i mean you know in space there has to be a Starbucks. I mean, you know, just because of the word Starbucks from, from Bowser Galacta. Anyway, um, so, so you were at Washington Dulles International Airport. And I, you know, I think this probably is intuitive for most people, but I don't know if a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about the airport. They get there, they get off a curbside, they dropped off, whatever. They take the shuttle, whatever it is. They walk in, they get their, t their ticket or they go to Skycap. They go to the gate, they, they get themselves something to eat or go through security, then get themselves something to eat, go to the bathroom. If they've got kids, hope that the kids don't make it too difficult. Uh, hope that they're not the ones picked for the, for the uh, frisk down or, or, or whatever, have the bag searched or, you know, whatever it is. And they don't think about anything. So if you're an international airport, that means there's an international terminal. That means that there's flights going in and out to other countries. If you're domestic, it's only domestic flights. doesn't mean that you can't start your international journey there or end your international journey, but everything's exclusively in U.S. airspace. The interesting part and why I'm so glad to have you who managed an international airport is because in my little game of spaceports, well, of course, it's going to be an international spaceport or at least there should be. There should be some out there. I mean, interstellar, whatever, whatever word is right. It, it, it's not like, you know, it, it may not be, you know, actually it could be either way, but let's assume there's at least an international aspect to it. If it's a, you know, a U.S. spaceport, if there's a Chinese spaceport, uh, you know, or, you know, you know, versus Antarctica where there's shared spaces and things like that. Teaser, we're going to have a show in Antarctica, you know, probably within the next month or so. Um, so with the international aspect, that means that there's more federal involvement 
and there's already federal involvement. Now, we had a show a couple of weeks back with an air traffic controller, a retired air traffic controller, both military and civilian, who educated us all on the role of the different air traffic controllers and airspace and stuff like that. And, and you know, who the lead air traffic controller is. But he said the air traffic, the, the airport manager basically runs the place. But like you, he said, you know, everyone thinks that they run the place. And but there's basically <laughs> sort of like a like a council and hopefully everyone gets along. Right. Um, the part I'm interested in with the international isn't so much about the airspace as it is with how do you as the airport manager deal with the border customs, immigration, and possibly federal law enforcement aspects of it? Like, do you oversee them? Do you have, is there a liaison? Do they report to you? Are they completely independent? It's just a courtesy. How does that work? That is a very interesting relationship. And depending on the port director who works for customs and the airport manager, it can either be a real great relationship or it can be a horrible relationship. Um, they, customs, really, we provide them the space. And because they're customs and a federal entity, they don't pay a cent for it. Um, they constantly are asking for additions, modifications. They're constantly, you know, begging that they don't have any money and want more facilities, more chairs, more office. They want to redo an office or whatever that type thing. And, you know, there's a typical bar back and forth. There's a extensive cooperation on working on passenger flows and how you get people in and through the facility. And again, we a lot of times we end up building the facility for them or outfitting it for them. So if they want 25 entry counters or 15 entry counters or add five, we the airport generally gets thrown into that mix to do it. Uh, but they are totally their own. Uh, as far as their ICE component and their law enforcement actions and that, uh, we will provide backup, but we don't uh, interfere in their operation. Uh, in fact, what's, what's really interesting, and I learned it very early in my career, I had a, um, an acquaintance of an acquaintance of an acquaintance, you know how that works, coming through the airport, and they confiscated his laptop. And, um, and, and he came through, and he was calling me to help out to see how he could get his laptop back. And I found out quite early that you haven't entered the United States until you have cleared customs. Right. So you don't have any rights to search, seizure, all the other stuff until you walk out the door at customs. Mm -hmm. so they really have a lot more authority and that than, than I ever conceived of, uh, you know, back when I first started working at the airport. But just an interesting, interesting point. When they hold you and detain you and start asking you questions and everything else, uh, you know, you, you are not in the U.S. at that point. But anyway, finally, you know, working with them, we finally get, they, they had some suspicions Wait, well, about, can, I'm, we, I'm, can we put a pin in that right there for a second? Cause I, and I don't know if you know the answer to these questions, but that's, that's really, I mean, in, in real life, I'm a lawyer and, um, it's just, uh, just a podcaster by, love and curiosity. So when I hear that you're not in the US and when they detain you, do you have Fourth Amendment rights? Do you have a do you have a right to an attorney? Do you have a right to remain silent? Is that granted just because we want to be a good player in the world? Or do we not bother because other countries don't? Or is it really whatever that the whoever the uh ranking officer is there, whether it's a lieutenant or a sergeant or do they make the decision or do you know any, or do you just not know anything about because that's federal? You, you stay in your lane, they stay in theirs. Uh, it's amazing how often you get thrust in the middle of those kind of arguments. And I will tell you, I have a brother who's big corporate lawyer and I'm a guardhouse lawyer, as he calls it. Uh -huh. No degree. I took admin and con law and undergraduate for kicks to see if I liked it. And I know just enough to get me in trouble. And our mutual friend used to bail me out all the time because she was an attorney, too. And she used to say, Keith, stay in your lane. I've got the diploma. You don't. Okay. But from that perspective, my understanding is you do not have those rights. Now, customs does not, you know, uh, for the most part, abuse those. I haven't really heard of that. I mean, they but they don't have to as my understanding is, they do not have to grant you those rights 
Illinois as a U.S. citizen on U.S. land. Okay. But uh, as a U.S. citizen, they typically do. But they can, if they've really, if if they're really suspicious of something, and it's amazing the stuff that comes through customs that people try to bring in. Oh, sure. Um, they can get quite uh, upset. They can, they can get quite tough, and it's not only with the people and what you carry in your carry-on baggage. It's what they ship in air freight and that that comes into the country too. Yeah, no, I, I mean they make the biggest deal of things like. Fruit, you know, and people never understand. Well, that's because, you know, there's invasive species, they carry bacteria, thing, thing, things like that. I mean, you know, that's how you get Ebola and monkeypox and stuff like that. But, right. um, I mean, is there any sort of international treaty? And, and we know well about treaties. Treaties are enforced by the willing, generally speaking. And sometimes there's, sometimes there's international courts, sometimes there's quasi courts through the UN or, and sometimes you're not even a party to that treaty, but, are, are there basically broad-based international agreements on the behavior of uh, international zone law enforcement? Um, not to my knowledge. Okay. Not to my knowledge. The, Fair enough. The, 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 yeah, we have ICAO, the International you know, Council that, uh, of Airports, that all gets together and they commiserate and they do their lobbying and you know, and, and applies what I'll call social pressure mm-hmm. on different countries for standards of conduct, but uh, nothing that I know that's uh, really formalized in any sense. Okay. I could be wrong on that, but I've never encountered it. That's okay. So we have ICE, that's Immigration Customs Enforcement. So basically Border Patrol Customs, which is the cargo, immigration, which is the people coming in, so is Border Control, I guess. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure where one ends or begins or if it's just the same people in there. Uh, the, the detail to, to to different places, but I imagine that they're also in some airports, probably the one you manage, probably an FBI presence, maybe a presence of something else that may or may not have been CIA uh, or some other, you know, do- Department of Homeland Security. I mean, do they each have their own sort of commanding officer, you know, ranking person, that, and they deal with each other? Do they all play along? I mean, I know nothing is always, but do they generally are, are are they on the same page or do they have their own little turf battles too, which sometimes brings you in, oh. into it? Yeah, they, 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 um, they, they're each little fiefdoms and, uh, you know, uh, FBI had an office on the airport for the longest time and a resident agent and he snooped around and did his work that he wanted to do from his agency, uh, DHS through TSA, TSA is part of DHS. That's their presence. And, and they have a, uh, a fellow who's in charge of that. Um, so, you know, they do their thing, which is mainly passenger screening and that, but they also get involved and, and, uh, you know, they like to extend a little bit, reach out to try to help you make the airport more secure than it is already. And then we've got our own police department and sometimes, you know, the, the badge and gun toters, they all sort of talk to each other and, you know, they sort of gang up on you, the airport manager, to get something that they want for this or that. And so it becomes a lot of negotiation and sitting down and compromise. And, and that's where you build the trust and the relationship with all of them. So, I mean, they're not going to tell you the state secrets that they've got and what they're, and, uh, and sometimes you have to watch their, you know, agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, it's the old cooperate and graduate. And, uh-huh. is, and it, it, for the most part, works well. Is there ever a time, because it is technically international ground, where there's Interpol, I'm not even exactly sure what Interpol is other than international police, or, you know, some other intelligence service or law enforcement service, like, I don't know, the, the, the Whenever I don't want to use the state's name, I just say Jeff Zikistan, you know, just to keep it safe. So if Jeff Zikistan Foreign Service or, or Department of Investigation wanted to have a, a, a department in Dullis for whatever reason, because Jeff Zikistan believes that just Jeff Zikistan's most wanted were going through Dulles, or just because we were had too much money to blow, could we rent space in the international zone and have a Jeff Zikistani um, Department of Inve- Bureau of Investigation office? In Dallas? No. No. Okay. No. So we, it, we, it's we, international we, ground, but the law the law enforcement aspect is limited to the host country. Right. Okay. And and the thing we dealt with being in Washington, DC, uh, we had 
you know, a, a lot of different operations, whether run by FBI or CIA or others, whether we were back uh, during the Carter administration where we uh, kicked the Iranians out, you know, the embassy and all that, shut it down and sent them home. They did that through Dulles. That was an operation during the Gulf War. Um, you know, a lot of the Saudis uh, departed, uh, were asked to leave and departed through Dulles. And that way we've had uh, different uh, hostages that uh, came back through Dulles that were, you know, coordinated by either the agency or the FBI um, and a lot of those things. So, and, and uh, negotiators at times would be, you know, um, hidden and, you know, taken out through aircraft that were leaving Dulles and go overseas. So, you know, Washington, D.C. was an interesting place to be in an interesting time where a lot of different things happened with different agencies, but they were all coordinated with the airport and, and the police, the FBI, and, you know, the people that needed to know. Was there ever not an interesting time? Um, well, sometimes that you, you know, no, I, I, all of them are sort of, every day was different, really. I mean, it's uh, running an airport, is a big city, you've got all the personalities, and there was hardly a dull day. Right, it's like, a, yeah, so 1997, that was a quiet year. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I'm sure during 1997 it didn't feel that way, because even if there wasn't some giant conflict in the world, and I don't know that there was or wasn't, I, I, there was probably a works project, which was giving you regular business-type headaches as, uh, you know, delays and, you know, my customers can't get to the restaurant because this guy's work is there. Um, do you? Well, I, I tell you, it's, it's, you, you bring that up and I ought to, I ought to just, one thing I used to tell people when they, you know, first came to the airport to work that, uh, you know, when, when everything was really going lousy mm -hmm. and you were having a miserable day, the thing you needed to do was just put down your pen, get out from behind your desk and go out to a, to a, well, in the old days before TSA locked out and you could go to the, you know, the gate where people were coming in and you watch families get together and kids get together and people greeting people and, and things. And it just picked you up. You went back to the office and you felt really refreshed. You really felt like you were doing something. Now you have, you can only go as far as the baggage claim area <laughs> and, uh, you know, and do that. But it's the same, it's the same sense is that you, you know, focus on what your mission is, which is to take care of the people and, uh, you know, go down there and just see that. And then you come back and it sort of puts stuff in perspective because you can't imagine how many people uh, would end up finding my office and I'd hear the screaming out front because they put in check baggage their proposal for a $50 billion contract. And their bag got lost. Oh, and they're blaming me, the airport manager, for losing their bag on X airline. Right. And they lose this contract and lose their job because they didn't have it. Every time you brake, your hybrid electric Corolla charges itself. So bring on that red light. We dare you. You never stop smiling in a Corolla. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Search Toyota Corolla to learn more. And it's that, or they put their medicine and check baggage, and it's my fault. And my poor, you know, chief of staff who was, or secretary out front, it's their fault for doing it. Um, it's a never-ending cycle, and you just have to go out and calm them down and, and see, you know, hey, it's you, you handed that bag over to an airline. The airline took custody of it. It's the airline's responsibility. Let's give them a call and see if we can, you know, Calm yourself down. Let's see if we can be productive here and try to find where your bag is. Or I suppose it could be with customs, but it's it's either the airline. Yeah. Well, it's probably always the airline's responsibility, but they could right. bring customs. And I guess if customs mm -hmm. has it, they probably, well, I'm not going to say they're flawless, that they never lose anything. But if they have it, there's probably some reason that they're holding on to it. Right. And the, and the airlines manage the bags within customs. Customs officers don't oh. manage move them around and everything else. The airline brings it to the customs area, puts it on the belt and gets up there. And if you lose your bag there, they generally have airline people in the customs area that handle the lost bag and do that too. So they can go past baggage claim, but you can't. Mm -hmm. Well, you, I can, but I can't see the passengers that are greeting their family when they're flying in until okay. they get the baggage claim. Okay. So you have free reign to anywhere if you really need it. If nothing else, if not by ranking the airport by the relationships that you have. Uh, 
So it's funny. So they took away your moment of Zen, not exactly as we just discussed, but you know, if you, if you don't want to be, you know, sort of wielding the big stick going, Hey, you're going to let me in. Um, was, was that changed because of security? Was it after nine 11? Right. After nine 11, they blocked off passengers from getting beyond screening. And, um, and airport staff from getting past baggage claim as well? Well, no, air, airport staff can go. Uh, you've got a tiered, uh, a tiered sort of security issue where you've got certain people that are allowed on the ramp, certain people are allowed at the gate areas, some people are allowed on the jetway. So your whole security system, and based on card access and, and PIN, is all based on what the level of access you need. You've got some people that, you know, just have an ID that say they work at the airport, but they aren't loud beyond security. Others can go beyond security and out there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough situation because, for example, uh, my maintenance people, they walk around carrying nail guns and uh, razor blades and hacksaws and everything else, sure. and yet they they've got to get out to do the work, you know, yeah. and repair the facility. So, you know, and you run background checks on them and everything. That's what gets in the pass and the ID. Um, so you've got a tiered sort of level of security based on where you want to go. It seems to me that there's a whole host of labor issues, and I imagine this is largely unionized, but there's probably, I mean, I imagine there's pilots unions, there's the uh, the air the airline staff unions whether it's the flight attendants or the the ticket agents and the uh, the baggage people with I mean not teamsters or not stevedores but it, it's probably something like that um, which I'm sure deal deal some of them deal more with the airlines and some of them deal more with the airports but then you have like you said your maintenance people the, the fire department the police department the medical staff I mean how many unions give or take did you have to deal with and and in fact i mean did the buck sort of stop with with you as well uh, with the possible exception of the ones that deal exclusively with airlines no uh well yes and no i had to deal basically with uh three separate unions okay that was police then fire and then my maintenance folks uh that was it and uh then the airlines dealt with all the rest they dealt with the pilots they dealt with the flight attendants you know, the fuelers or whatever. And the only time we got involved with them was issuing a permit if they wanted to pick it. And then we restricted the areas that they could pick it because uh, we didn't want them blocking access for the passengers. So we had a rulemaking that we went through that established areas and the rest and notification. And then if they wanted to go on strike or whatever, then we accommodate them that way to set up a picket line. Okay, so at that point it goes to the FAA and their, their it, labor negotiation. Okay. Yeah, the airport deals with that. Okay, so that, that's that's not something you, you just don't get in the way. Make sure everything goes by procedure, and you 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 know the, if it's the airlines, if the airlines, if it if it's the union, then I, I don't know if it's National Labor Relations Board or the, the Department of Labor or FAA or whoever, but someone else is is dealing with right. labor negotiations. Okay, so your your sort of collateral damage or, or collateral benefit, but either way, you're not direct. I mean, you're directly impacted, but you're not directly involved. Right, and they're national unions. I mean, so if they, the American pilots go on strike, it isn't just Dulles; it's all over. Right. You know, so and they're run out of their corporate headquarters. So. Okay. So, all right, you're you're in the D.C. area, so you're very familiar with concurrent jurisdiction. So, for the for the folks at home who maybe aren't. Um, so I'll give an easy example. There's, there's a road called the Baltimore Washington Expressway. It's basically 295 South. It is basically a spur from the Baltimore Beltway straight down into DC. Uh, it, it ends at the intersection basically of Bladensburg Road and New York Avenue. The point is it's just a road. It's got a few exits. Lots of them are for very well known, you know, government facilities, Goddard, NSA, uh, the National Arboreum. A few major roads and also BWI Airport. The point of this is that the Maryland State Police have jurisdiction, but it's a federal road. So also the the, the Parks Department technically is is the primary jurisdiction. If there's a murder, the Parks Department are, are the lead investigators. Uh, there was a story about 12 years ago that made national news uh, with that. And I was like, the Parks Department have homicide? Yes, they do. Um but uh, also, uh, I believe Howard County Police and Prince George's County Police and even Baltimore County Police can have some concurrent jurisdiction 
within their counties or in exigent circumstances. Why am I saying all this? Because I imagine this happens in an airport from time to time where the jurisdiction might be the D.C. police. Well, it's probably the Virginia police there, Loudoun County or whatever it is. Um, The airport police probably primarily and maybe federal law enforcement, plural, um, I'm, I'm imagining maybe on the tarmac in a chase situation or from the international terminal in, into, I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen very often, but let's pick up Die Hard 2 and just say, you know. I was going to say, you're going down that road, airplane and Die Hard 2. <laughs> you, you should have heard the interview I did with Holly Doremus from the Institute of the Sea. I wanted her to play the game with me as to Bond villains building, building things in international waters. And she's just like, nobody would do it. There's not the technology. She didn't want to play with me at all. Um, so yes, I am absolutely going down die hard too. So, so what, what happens then is, is the Dennis Franz is, is, is he the one in charge? Is, is the FBI in charge? Are you in charge? Who, who, who's, who's the, the guy or the gal who, who says, Hey, you, 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 you knuckleheads, knock this off. <laughs> well, that is a good one, um, and it again, it it varies. the The on scene commander is um, it really it, it it transfers. I wish it was as clean and cut and dried as you want. As an airport manager, I say I'm responsible and I'm in charge because I am responsible. They come back looking for me. Uh, my name will be on the lawsuit, guaranteed you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the we have, at the airport itself, like I said, we have our own police. But we do have, as you said, concurrent jurisdiction because the state police, Virginia State Police, half of our airport is in Loudoun County, half of our airport is in Fairfax County. Uh, we also own the land that Route 28 sits on, which is just outside our fence, even though our property line extends the full width of 28. So... We have concurrent jurisdiction there, and we have the access highway, which is 14 miles from the airport down to where it joins 66, and we have concurrent jurisdiction on there with the state police and Fairfax County Police. Route 66, and, where people get their kicks. Yes, and uh, and, a, and, a, and a fairly expensive uh, toll truck to get on it during <laughs> rush hour. The, the point being is it's not a good idea to tell the state policeman that you're on airport property and he has no jurisdiction because that's a loser. Right. Uh, but uh, that's that's the way it goes. There, we uh, you have we have an operations division which have operations officers, and they're responsible for coordinating all the activities and being my representative, the airport manager's representative, when there's an incident or an accident. Uh, initially, you have when it comes out, and and again, it's relationship building. When you come out, I don't expect the ops officer to direct the fire department on how to fight a fire. Sure. So for that, the fire fire chief is in charge. He does that part. Um, Then it drops to if there's a criminal act or something else or preservation of evidence or that, then you've got the police department doing their thing. And the ops officer, again, is over in charge. He's management's representative to coordinate it and and make sure things happen. Um, So we had, you know, during the anthrax stuff, uh, constantly, we had more calls for people thinking there was anthrax on the airplane or in a building or a bathroom or whatever. Somebody put it. You know, you get out there and set up the, you know, set up the perimeter. Again, that was worked out with operations to make sure you didn't shut down the whole airport. Right. Same thing with bomb threats. You get those all the time, and you set up that thing. Then you have the fire department and their gear that's trained to go in and evaluate, take samples and that. You have the police department that then go in once it's clear to go in and, and check for evidence and do that. And and that's the way it evolves. And the more, frankly, the more you practice that and the more you work with that, the better off it, better it gets. And occasionally you end up with, if we had uh, something that was really suspicious that needed to be, you know, checked a bag that was so suspicious that you didn't want to open it. Um, and you wanted to shoot something through it or whatever, it would be either a bomb tech from either county police or the state police generally that did that. We had bomb dogs uh, at the airport that were our police that had to be certified, you know, uh, just the way customs dogs and any other, you know, DHS, uh, TSA dogs or any other FBI dogs would be. Um, so you'd, you'd send those, you know, get the team certified and we'd have those to clear objects um, and clear situations. 
But again, it's a, it's a relationship building thing. Okay. I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to die hard, but it's probably more likely that it's going to be like a DUI. And my guess there is that if anything, nobody wants to take over. Everyone wants someone else to have to do the paperwork and deal with some, something like that. Um, well, it was, it was funny. We had a, uh, well, not funny for the individual, but years ago, we had an airplane that took off a small, small airplane. And, um, it ended up, it ended up right, right after it rotated, it, it, uh, augered in and crashed and burned. And the individual, uh, uh, perished in the, in the, in the crash. The fire department had pulled him out of the airplane and his, you know, put him in a body bag laying right there beside the road while the press had gotten wind of it. And they were coming out to the scene and we didn't want to have, you know, the press come out because sure. it was a working site. I'm trying to be delicate here. And so I looked at the fire department because they have the ambulance. And I said, well, throw them in there and take them down to the, to the morgue, you know, the hospital in the morgue. He says, no, he says, we can't do that. We aren't authorized to do that. Uh, we can only take living people, you know, that direction. So I said, well, turn around to the police chief who was there. And I said, well, you take him. And, you know, not all of them were running with their hands off. No, 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 no. So finally, I sat there and just said, okay, I'm taking responsibility for it. Put them in the ambulance and take them down there. Well, sure enough, they did. About two hours later, my boss got a call from the hospital and said, what the hell is going on there? And what did this guy Merlin do? And uh, we all had a good laugh about it afterwards when he explained the whole situation. And the body was treated respectfully. And, uh, you know, the press got their access, which they needed. Everybody was happy. And, you know, it ended up being resolved. But it, uh, those situations, you know, they're, it, it's it's... It seems like nine times out of ten, it's probably cut and dried. But that one can really, really be a, a miserable one if it isn't done right. And uh, sometimes you just get lucky. Well, that begs another question: Who was your boss? I mean, title. You don't need to say it's uh, Henry Jones or something. But I mean, yeah. Like what? What agency? What department? Uh, you know, what was the title? Who? Who was? Who was ahead of you? On top of you? We had the. It was the. Uh, and what was his title, sir? Uh, he was the head of both airports. We had an administrative head that was over both airports. And then under that, we had the two airport managers. And then he had a staff. Uh, we had a centralized engineering department that handled the really, you know, the, the multi-million dollar projects. We at the airport handled pretty big projects too, but, you know, we controlled those. But that it was a way of... Um, you know, you could consolidate some functions and save money by doing it that way. So but it was, a, was it the Metropolitan? Was I'm sorry, go ahead. Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority. Okay. And he was the CEO of that. And there's still, you know, there still is a CEO of, of the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority who, who commented, who was in charge of that. And, and that's an independent agency? Or it's an independent, it's an independent authority. It has a board of directors. The, it, the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority is really unique in that it has a um, a board of directors appointed by the uh, president, the governors of Maryland, Virginia, um, and uh, and the president of the United States. Is it a so for profit or is it tax exempt? Oh, it's uh, it it uh, what do you, for, it's not ta it's not a five hundred one c three or four. It's you know, it's a regular. It's a it's a business. Okay, so so it itself is a technically a for profit though. Maybe they don't make any money, and obviously, if they're bonding this, is it is it quasi public? Is it public private, or it's is it entirely private? No, it, it's quasi public, and and the way it works is it, it really is sort of a the way the budget works is if they, you figure out what your total expenses are, and then you figure out for the airport side. So you take that. That's one bucket. Then your next bucket is how much money do we get from the concessions? That's rental cars, parking, concessions, and all that. So that's the next bucket. Then you estimate what between that, you've got that estimate, you've got the estimate of what it's going to cost you. The gap that fills in between is what the airlines pay. And that's negotiated in the use and lease agreement with the airlines. So you've got space, 
ticket counter space is more valuable than back office space, which is, you know, more valuable than, let's say, ramp space and gate space. So you've got all different tiers of space that the airlines pay for. And then you adjust, you work that, the numbers so that it works out. So you basically balance the books. And then you do a mid-year review to look at that, how you're doing. You can make adjustments to the airlines if the concessions are really doing well. You can lower the airline costs. If the concessions aren't doing well and passengers are down, then you can increase the airline costs. And all this is all this is negotiated in the use and lease agreement. So it's not a, a profit-making thing. In fact, at airports, any profit that's made has to stay at airports to pump back into the airport. That's part of the FAA. You know, if they're going to, if the federal government is going to send money to an airport to build taxiways and runways and that, uh, they don't want to have like an airport that's run by a city being the airport being the cash cow for the city. Sure. The airport, no. the airport generates the money and turns it internally into the airport. Yeah, I mean, so, it, it should be an economic boon to the community. Uh, I, I, right. I would imagine the, the airports, like every other small cities, are pretty much, ever, you know, probably needs more money than it brings in for various things. And depending on who you're talking to, they all think that they need more money than maybe they actually do or more now than they actually do. Um, but that, that's, but that, that just goes to your point that you're like the mayor of, of a town and it, it is, it is, you know, sort of messy there. There's, you know, it, it's like running a mall, um, but with lots of labor unions involved um, and, and lots of different government agencies there uh, interrelating. And, and including an international presence. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think in space it would be l- largely the same, but probably in the beginning a lot less complicated, uh, which is probably a good thing because, I, you know, lazy, you know, history would tell you that you just model the, the, the future on the present. Um, but if there's less moving parts, I mean, there's other complications like building it and getting there and breathing, um, things like that in the time involved. But if there's less moving parts, you know, you don't have a super mall yet and, and things like that. There, you know, there's probably, you know, less things. You, you might have one agency running it. Maybe it's quasi governmental. Maybe it's public private. Who knows? Um, yeah. I fear it will be public-private. I use the word fear purposefully because I, I sort of feel like, you know, that the British East India Company or the Hudson Bay Company is sort of like a more likely uh, short-term <laughs> future than Star Trek, you know? I mean, it's, it's uh, and, and, you know, and, and all the mistakes that, you know, we say we won't make again, we may well make again. And, you know, we're sort of hoping that there's nothing sentient <laughs> out, out, out mm-hmm. there or... You know, or by the time we're, you know, or, or the, there's too much space to ruin any ecosystems. And, you know, I, I don't know that any of that's true. I mean, I don't know that anybody does. I, I sort of think that we should pretend that even if there are little green men, that there are little green men um, and, and try to behave ourselves that way. I'm not sure. Um, but that's not your poll part in this particular mission. I mean, you are more than welcome to play along on this now and in the future, if you like. Um, well, I tell you, you know, a few years ago, I would have thought it would have been very much like you mentioned the South Pole, where you get a community of, you know, nations together and do exploration and experimentation and, you know, do their research uh, before they actually start mining minerals and everything else. But now that we've got SpaceX and the other ones involved, you get more to the East India Company. Mm-hmm. And, and that can become a Wild West of sorts. That's why I'm making a prediction right now. And I've made it before, so it's not the first time, but it's the first time you're hearing it. It's that the government will actually partner with Boeing because Boeing is the one that's most likely to behave the best because they still make most of their money on earthbound contracts. Hmm. Interesting. So SpaceX, I think, you know, Elon's going to do what Elon does. I mean, you know, and then, you know, Bezos probably... He's he's quieter about it. He seems to be a little bit further behind on it. And I think most of Branson's rockets have exploded. So I am not sure where he is. I think those are the players. <laughs> I'm not sure. And then you have other governments that, you know, depending, right. depending on, you know, depending on what the costs versus the benefits are, they'll either behave reasonably well like they do here 
or they'll behave terribly, you know, and, and, you know, it always depends how close that 30 trillion dollar asteroid is, you know, and and then if they think they can get it and bring it back, I mean, that's just right. So, you know, but that's sort of the game I'm playing, but I'm, I am hoping to start a conversation, even though my show is very small, but I'm hoping they'll, you know, I think I'm the only one doing this and hopefully it'll, I'm, I'm getting enough guests with clout like yourself and some reporters and journalists and whatever that eventually I'll work my way up where maybe either someone will take the, you know, I try to make it entertaining, but I'm also serious about and that it will become part of a conversation because while this doesn't seem like the most important issue probably to anybody, and maybe it isn't, now is the time to deal with it, even though we want to deal with gas prices and Ukraine and China and North Korea and Taiwan and homelessness and mental health and, and a whole other host of things, which I cannot tell anyone in good faith that those things are all not more important. All I'm saying is that now is the time that if there's some group of people that focus on this and try to chart a better path, it, it, it will pay dividends if we're still around in the next two or three centuries. Well, Jeff, I, I admire your optimism. But, uh, <laughs> I, this is all based out of cynicism. I mean, the optimism well, maybe is just, uh, well, maybe maybe part of me is optimistic. But Yeah, they just, uh, our history is we just keep kicking it down the road till it finally smacks us in the face, and then we put a half-baked solution in that then comes back and bites us two years later and find out the legislation or whatever we did was, did miss the mark. Lately, anyway. That seems to be the prevailing opinion, but not the universal one. So, you know, as much as uh, Professor Dreamers didn't want to play my Blofeld Bond villain game with me, there are people like her out there who are true optimists and and do believe in it better. And I have, uh, I'll call them soft yeses from some law professors studying this, and they believe that it would be in businesses' interest to behave as businesses like predictability. My thought is, yeah, they like predictability until the costs of, you know, them being first outweighs the cost of in- unpredictability because they'll be in charge. Or if maybe you're inclined to name a planet after your last name, you know. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. We have a, um, a regional, uh, our economic development agencies, all the counties have them, mm-hmm. trying to grab business and, and grow business in your county. And they got together for as a region, regionalism. You know, we can do more together than we can separate. Right. So they got together. Well, a fella, and he's retired, so he's not living in the area anymore, so non-attribution, I won't say his name, pulled me aside one time, and he says, Keith, this regionalism is great, as long as it ends up in my county. Right. And that's, you get down to the nuts and bolts, that's it. Yeah, you're right. I'm not so okay. So I am being a little optimistic, but I promise you that I'm I'm a skeptic and a cynic at heart. And this and the and the hope for optimism is just that it's hope. This is all built out of right. cynicism. I'm just hoping people that are more important than me pick it up and 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 say, huh, yeah, we 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 can probably find chart a better path. But anyway, that's not for you and I today. It's too big a, a task for either of us. And you're retired. Enjoy your retirement. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I forgot to ask you? Something that's this critical. This was this was really enjoyable, and it uh, you know it is. It's um, you know airport managers have a fun job. Um, they provide a you know if an airport isn't under construction, the the town is is probably not doing well economically. And uh, if you travel through Europe, if uh, you know. You, take a river cruise and you go to all these different villages and towns and cities they're all along a river why because that was the center of commerce and and uh that's what that's what airports do they are a major economic engine uh for any city or locale and they connect the people in your area to businesses and friends and family across the country and around the world and it's a great job great mission and uh and a lot of fun. Did you watch and Deadwood? Jim, thank you very much. Thank you. Did you did you ever watch the show Deadwood on HBO? Yes. Okay, so I, I guess the only room for optimism I guess left is that even Al Swearingen wanted law and order and wanted to be part of the state's 
you know, in, that was his long-term goal, however he got there. So uh, I guess right. that is that enlightened self-interest. So thank you so yeah. much. I'm glad that you found it enjoyable. I try to tell people that no one believes it, um, but maybe one day they will. Um, but I thank you. It really is interesting. I find lots of things interesting, but I think this really is interesting. And I, I really think a lot of people just take for granted how things work. They don't understand all the moving parts involved and that nothing is simple. Uh, everything is shades of gray and then subshades of gray. And then maybe there's a second dimension with entirely different shades of gray in that dimension uh, as well. Well, but, yes. I tell you, it, it, we are successful if that passenger comes into the airport and goes through and gets on the airplane and really doesn't experience, you know, it's seamless. It's just smooth. It's just boom. And they're gone. Well, that's what we want. My own experience and, uh, so far, I don't know that everything's been seamless, but so far I'm still alive. So I've always gotten to where I'm supposed to get. <laughs> well, please, when you talk to our mutual friend's daughter, give her my, give her my best, please. I certainly will. I thank you so much. Um, thank you. I appreciate your time again. Thank you for your service and thank you for your expertise. Well, thank you, Jeff. Take care. You do the same. Okay, folks, um, we just disconnected. I just want to remind everyone to give us a rating, give us a review, hopefully five stars, hopefully positive. Share the show with your friends and family, anyone who you think might be interested or can lend something that's uh, related to this mission or anything that's legal or policy related that, that might make a good interview or just a good story. Um, you know, this, this show has only recently uh, gone into sort of the legal end and and you know, primarily focused on the laws of space and international laws and things like that. Um, but originally it was just because I was doing interviews on Garden of Doom that I felt while anything can fit into Garden of Doom, that there sort of were some interviews that probably needed to be in a different show because Garden of Doom is more alternative. I mean, there's overlap, there's history and there's, you know, and, and religion. Those things are certainly, you know, as academic as can be, but I don't know. It's just, some interviews just felt like they needed a different show title, and that—that's really all the difference is. So, if you know anyone, we take we accept references for both shows. Uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody and see if they be a good fit for the show. Otherwise, uh, thank you very much for tuning in, and hope that you hear from us next week. All my week. bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up. Goodbye But the dawn is breaking It's early morn Taxi's waiting He's blowing his horn Already I'm so lonesome I could cry So kiss me And smile for me Tell me that you'll Wait for me Hold me like you'll Never let me go I don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go There's so many times I've let you down So many times I've played around I tell you now they don't mean a thing Every place I go I think of you Every song I sing, I sing for you When I come back, I'll wear your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go Go. Now the time has come to leave you One more time Let me kiss you Then close your eyes I'll be on my way Dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the time I won't have to say
Oh, babe, I hate to go.